0: The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available for $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, I'm your host Gordon Burkell, and this week we've got something special for you to listen to. So, I recorded this a while ago, uh, but then NAB got in the way, the Assembly magazine uh, output got in the way and I finally get to get it out to you guys. So Cindy Clarkson is a, a phenomenal editor from Australia and uh, the two of us have talked a lot online and then we finally got to meet at the Toronto Film Festival and then from there we've just sort of blossomed to friendship I guess you could say. And so finally the two of us got a chance to sit down and do an interview. Now here's the thing we probably got through a fraction of what I would love to have asked her her resume is phenomenal go to IMDB check out Cindy Clarkson uh, just to give you a sense she did there's two films in particular that I love when I watch them which was Van Diemen's uh, land and then of course there's every night every night which is really a tough film to get through in terms of um, the the content that you're watching but they're both phenomenal films. If you're into skateboarding or you're into documentaries, definitely check out The Man Who Sold the World and sold his S-O-U-L-E-D, like the shoes. Uh, and then, of course, there's Canopy, which is, just came out in well, came out in Australia a little while ago, but it's probably just coming out into the rest of the world. Uh, phenomenal movie. And Cindy was lucky enough that she got to take part in some of the uh, Adobe Atmos uh mixing, which is a whole new thing. Uh, she wasn't the mixer, but she was there and got to have some say in terms of you know what, how the audience might see it. So we talk a bit about that in a later episode, uh, but in this episode we're going to sit down and learn about how she got into editing and what have you. The other thing you should know is that she wrote a couple of articles for the ASE, the Australian Screen Editors, for the Assembly magazine. And so you can always download that and read her work at aotg.com slash assembly. So in the meantime, enjoy my interview with Cindy.
1: I do enjoy what I, I work on, which is independent features. Um, hmm. But they're not well paid, as we all understand. Um, and I've got to a stage where I'd like a bit more money on a regular basis. And of course, the way to, to do that is to cut television. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to get producers to and directors to perceive me as someone that would be capable. And of course, it's always that thing of uh, someone taking the risk.
0: <laughs> Which makes no sense to me because story, story, you know, at the end of the day, it's like a good story will will sing, right? No matter, yeah. no matter what. And I always find that frustrating because I have friends who are in television trying to get into features and they're hitting the same wall and it's like, oh, you've never cut a feature. So we can't. We're worried about that. And it's like, well you know he's he's i have one friend who cuts an hour show every other week like a wow and it's like but you know cutting a feature they're worried about him so well
1: i i feel for him um I, i don't know whether it happens in your industry the way it did here but in the 90s certainly through the 80s um In 1970s, we were absolutely willing to take risks and do all sorts of things with filmmaking. And I'm not just talking about editing. I'm talking the way we shot it, the way we wrote it, Mm -hmm. and everything else. Um, But towards the 90s, we started getting cautious. And from then on, it's got to the point where unless you are recommended highly by several people, you're just not going to get a shot.
0: Wow. And it's interesting because that was going to be one of my questions was about... The history of Australian cinema and and the sort of uh, Australian New Wave and the what uh, Quentin Tarantino refers to as exploitation yeah. uh, films and I was going to see how that sort of where where sort of you fall in that I guess it kind of ends just before your you start cutting uh, but how that influenced your work or if it influenced your work at all.
1: Um, well, yes, it would have influenced my work on a subconscious level. I don't know early on in my career would it, because I was mainly assisting, not editing, um, because the heyday and the exportation films that you're talking about are the 1980s really mm-hmm. um, where Australia had a, a tax incentive called the 10BA where if you invested money into a film as whether you were in the film industry or not as a punter, you got a hundred percent of your money back on tax in your tax claim, so it was a way that um, to revive the Australian film industry. I'll take a step back. Nineteen um, seventies, Gough Whitlam is elected into um, Parliament with the Labor government after years, like scores of years, of not being in government in nineteen seventy-two, and he brings with him a change, it's an intellectual change on so many levels. He's the first Western, um, well, in our case it was our prime minister um, or head of state, let's put it that way, oh, mm-hmm. even that's the long term. Anyway, he got, he recognises China and visits China and he's the first Western leader, there we go, leader to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, he begins the recognition of Aboriginal rights. Um, Aboriginals, the Australian Aboriginals got votes finally got the vote in the late 60s um, but he started forwarding that process um, which from then on our governments continue to do, culminating in um, Kevin Rudd saying uh, sorry to the from the nation to the first people um, several years ago now, it's probably about four or five, I could be wrong about that date. Which is great, and in amongst all those changes that the Whitlam era brought to us, um, part of it was the revival of the Australian film industry, and this is where TBA came in. So by the eighties, um, we had a flourishing industry that was regularly making films and back to back, and quite mm-hmm. consistently producing out—not um, necessarily the best films ever—and definitely the exploitation films, which is where the documentary, not quite Hollywood. Um, delves into it in quite in depth and explores all those kind of films and I, that was the era that I was starting to go to cinemas with my family, with my mates um, as a teenager and watching them. So I saw Man from Snowy River, Breaker Morant, um, Razorback, was aware of things like Turkey Shoot which is currently being remade here again and um, So I saw a majority of those films and also was aware of what we were making, Um, although I wasn't aware that I was going to be a film practitioner until my second year in university where I um, realised that an elective I was doing, which was film, was actually something I wanted to do because it was uh, teaching us or gave uh, the students, the university students, the opportunity to learn how to be a cinematographer or a sound individual. So you learn how to record on location and also mix. Um, and then there was also editing. So I mm. enjoyed editing and putting the pictures together because before then I wanted to be a writer. And I realised um, during the course that I was doing, which was taken by Elizabeth Jolly and Tim Winton, two prominent Western Australia writers, that, um, that I wasn't really going to be able to make a living out of it, not enough to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. Um, And editing, for some reason, it piqued my curiosity and my fascination. And, of course, it took me a while, but editing is is writing with images and sound, Mm -hmm. which is what fascinated me. It also took me away from the politics of film crews, which I didn't enjoy. I also didn't enjoy standing around (laughs) waiting for things to happen, and as we know as, an, as editors, um, the joy of, of a cutting room is that you are constantly engaged. Mm-hmm. You are always thinking, you're always doing, you're communicating and talking with either your director, your producer um, or your assistants if you're lucky enough to have them. Um, so you're constantly thinking and working the process and, and that engaged me enormously. And collaboration, I really enjoyed the process, and I still do obviously, of working with another individual, mainly the director, to get their vision, to find um, what they were seeking to uh, explain, put across to the audience, whether that be just enjoyment of entertainment for the five minutes, the 90 minutes it lasts or to get across a piece of information that they think is incredibly important that the community needs to know about. So, um, that's me rabbiting on.
0: Really? <laughs> well, no, I was gonna, cause it's funny. Cause we sort of just started the interview. So usually my yeah. first question is like, how'd you get in into it? But I was sort of, uh, in the research, I was like, Oh, I really getting into the, the, uh, uh exploitation or the new wave, Australian New Wave, and I sort of started getting wrapped up in this sort of how the culture sort of defines the films for a bit, but then there's there's always the Hollywood influence, so this weird yeah. dichotomy um or a sort of mixture of styles. Um so do you still write? Do you still get a chance to try try writing or
1: Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I I haven't really shared it with the universe as such, but I do enjoy writing and I I do have um, short stories or observations that I've seen during the day, whether it be an interaction between people or nature or, you know, a sunset or something like that, then I'll sit down and describe it in words for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, It's more a personal thing now, although... Since being a teenager, I've been writing a set of novels. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, they have managed to mature into something less than copying everything I've ever seen or read. Um, and I get great enjoyment about thinking about how this character would do such and such with this by when confronted by this circumstance. Um, I don't know if anybody will ever see the light, see them. Um, there's about three of them that I've managed to complete with another nine of them in bits and pieces. Um, but I, I just enjoy the challenge of it and I dip in and out when I'm, I'm not working when I'm working, I I can't write. I, Mm -hmm. I need to be completely absorbed and focused on the film at hand, whether it be drama or doco.
0: Well, it just, it makes it, the reason I brought that up is it makes me think of, have you ever read that, um, Eisenstein article that he wrote, uh, I think it's called Dickens Griffin and the Cinema of Today or something like that. It was written a long time ago,
1: yeah.
0: Um, And it's all about how Charles Dickens, the way he writes, is very similar to the editing of uh, of Griffin, uh, Griffith. Uh,
1: Okay, no, it's all about
0: yeah. It's all like you know he takes like little lines from Dickens and he's like, oh, this is like a crossfade, and oh, this is like a a smash cut no this is you know so he sort of applies it and is like the editor is the writer of today and all this stuff and it was sort of this small insight that's why i thought that was really interesting that you started out as a writer or getting into writing
1: yeah i i just was lucky as a teenager i found that's what i wanted to do but eisenstein is an incredible filmmaker um if I ever are talking to young students who are interested in editing, I do point them towards silent filmmakers and he's absolutely one. And, of course, the Odessa Stairs out of mm-hmm. Battleship Potemkin is, you know, something that you can't go past um, and you, you can pull it to pieces frame by frame. He's, he's an extraordinary filmmaker and I, I, I just, I really wish that I'd been around time of the 1920s when it was just an explosion of, um, form for filmmaking because Mm -hmm. by the end, by the 1930s, they'd pretty much done everything.
0: Yeah. They'd sort of figured out a lot of the, like, have you ever seen his, um, his experimentation in sounds? Yeah, and even that, like, I look at that and I'm like, "Wow, there's experimental filmmakers nowadays who are sort of doing this." And he was like, "He was doing it back in the '30s." You know. Yeah,
1: it's, totally. I mean, every everything that we do, of course, we're reinventing stuff and we're using new technology and we're finding different ways of expressing it and layering it and um, putting it out there, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, our our human voice has already. Explored that idea and process years before. Um, it doesn't mean that what it doesn't make what we're doing now any less valid. It's just that the filmmakers then was dealing with something so new mm-hmm. that it gave them the elasticity to explore a different form.
0: Yeah, hmm. I, I have one other thing, and then I'll get we'll get into the, <laughs> the questions for the interview. But um, that's
1: okay. That's okay, Gordon. That's
0: uh, have you, there's a documentary you should look into, and I think it's online for free, oh, and, it, and it's called Everything is a Remix, and it's this guy's whole theory that everything in history is basically just recreated or based off something else. Yes. And that theref- it's a, he basically is putting up an argument for us to get rid of copyright, and he thinks everything should just be free for remixing and rebuilding and building new ideas. Um, And so this documentary is based on a book called Everything is a Remix um, that he put out sort of fighting against uh, copyright uh, laws that the music industry was putting in. Yeah. Um, Because I think he was the lawyer for like Napster, for one of the big companies that sort of fought for uh, open copyright laws.
1: Okay. Um, Well, that makes complete sense. I mean, you can understand the concept of copyright and people wanting to protect Mm -hmm. their intellectual property, but you can also absolutely see their point of view as well.
0: Yeah. Well, there's things like there was a really good example. um, Like the, the Beatles took a flute for something and they play it backwards at the beginning of one of their songs. Yeah. No one's really complained about it, but then um, the, I think the Verve played a couple bars from a Rolling Stones song and they got sued and they'll never make money off that song even though the rest of the song was something completely different
1: yeah so it's, it was, it's, it's different world we live in too
0: yeah yeah it's crazy
1: yeah I, I, I don't know how we get around it i mean the litigation thing is just everybody's so sensitive and the political correctness that we encounter every day just in general life but also as filmmakers is um can be somewhat suffocating and stifling. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, uh, but I guess I guess to sort of start, we've got we've sort of started a bit, but uh, can you give yeah, me a, sure. give me a sense of how you got into the film industry and particularly how you got into film editing?
1: Sure. Okay. Um, well, as as a young uh, wide-eyed teenager, I decided I wanted to be a writer at about the age of thirteen or fourteen. Um, and this didn't dissipate while going through high school. So um, I managed to get into an English course at what is now Curtin University um, but was then known as WAIT West Australian Institute of Technology um, and in the English course was a creative writing component where Elizabeth Jolly and Tim Winton, two established and world-renowned writers were actually taking the course. So for me it was an obvious place to go. Also part of the English course um, was film. For some reason it was attached to English. So um, I did it as an elective and the first year was mainly spent, it was an easy elective, we went to watch films um, the first semester which was amazing for me. It opened my eyes up. I loved film already. As a teenager I'd started going to see films in the cinema with my family and my friends. It started with Star Wars in 1977. When delightfully, my parents decided they needed to go and see the film before they took us in case it was too scary for us. So I've never gotten over that and I haven't taken <laughs> them for it because it means I missed out on going to see it earlier and I didn't get to see it twice. But... Um, my love affair with filmmaking started there in the sense of the scope of storytelling and what was capable for a screen, but I wasn't really conscious of it until I became a university student at the age of 18 started looking at it further than a form of entertainment. Um, in the second semester we got to make a Super 8 film about changing a flat tyre where we got to shoot it and cut it and there was no sound. We did actually start splicing things together. So at that point I started being a little bit curious about this process. Delightfully, this this particular film course, unlike other courses that are available in Australia at that time, um, it wasn't about being a writer, director and an auteur as such. It was more about learning to be a technician. So you could learn the skills of being a cinematographer or a sound recordist on location and a sound mixer or editing. Um, mm. And I- To me, the editing fascinated me and at first I didn't understand that fascination. Part of it was because I didn't enjoy standing around on set waiting for people to do things Um, and part of it was because I kind of enjoyed the one-on-one with the director and talking to them and communicating and trying to work out what they wanted, what we had with the footage and how we could do it. And by putting the pictures and sound together, I started falling in love with the way that by changing the pacing or changing a shot or not editing or just lo- using all the close-ups and forgetting about all the wide shots or, or alternatively another way, how, how different that made the story, whether it be a documentary or a drama. Um, and it took me a long time later for me to realise that actually it is writing. It's just a different form. It's writing with picture and sound. And I, I realised that's what I wanted to do, so... At the end of my what ended up being a Bachelor of Arts in three years, I ended up with a um, a double minor in sorry, a double major in film and TV and creative writing with a minor in literature. Mm. So I was extremely lucky, I got the best of both worlds. I ended up still being a writer and wanting to write, but suddenly had the capacity to find work and edit because of the Perth industry at that time because I was in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, was quite alive and was actually making stuff over there, mainly kids' television or documentary, but I could find work and it was fantastic.
0: So so what was some of your early work then in, in the industry?
1: Um, as an assistant, I managed to work with a company called Baron Films um, and I worked on Heydays. Days and there is one other series which is just escaping me at the moment. I walked through the hills. There we go. I went through from the picture assembly through to um, the end of sound edit as an assistant on that. Um, And I also had the luck of cutting um, or being involved with a documentary on the America's Cup, which happened in um, 1986 and 87, across the end of 86 through 87, um, where the BBC came down because they were doing a three-part documentary on the America's Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the year that Alan Bond was trying to defend the Australians having won it in 83. Um, so I got to work with this high, high-end high BBC documentary editor called Dave Thomas um, and worked with him for about four months and he left. And um, I went on working in the industry and one day I got a call saying, do you want to work in England? And I, I kind of sat back and went, um,
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was going to say, that you yes. had to sit back?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 I hadn't really had much communication with David since he'd left. Mm-hmm. I think I'd written a couple of letters. It's before the internet um, and I maybe phoned him once. I don't know that I had actually done that. So we were in a little bit of contact but not much. Um, and he'd rung me and he, he'd asked this question and he said, well, there's a, an opening coming up for a holiday relief film assistant editor at the BBC. Do you want it? Now, my brain went immediately yes, but I had a situation where I was recently engaged. Um, I was in a relationship and I, I, I couldn't just say yes because I had to consider my partner, Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, so... <laughs> My answer to him was, yes, absolutely, but I need to talk to Matt. Um, (laughs) So in the long run, the answer was, yes, I went, and I went for six months. Um, Matt continued studying because he was still a student at that stage, Mm -hmm. Um, and I I was working for the BBC in London um, for six months, and it was just fantastic. It was the most amazing experience. I, I ended up working a day on projects, or I think the longest was three weeks, Um, anywhere in Ealing Studios to Lime Grove to um, an area the BBC had hired somewhere in Soho. I can't remember. I think it was the Radio Workshop material. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it was just an eye-opener. And for someone who had just really joined the industry, it was fantastic. It was also my first time overseas, so that in itself was a boon as well. It It was great fun.
0: Now, it's interesting because I think about when I think about the BBC, I remember talking to a few editors uh, and they said that originally uh, years ago, uh, if you worked at the BBC, you could take courses so that they would have people like little t- war- workshops or talks to help you improve. Uh, but that's no more. Was that still around when you were there?
1: Um, it may have been, but I, w- I wasn't aware of it or I, it wasn't drawn to my attention, it's 87, Maggie Thatcher's in power and she's just beginning to pull the BBC apart Mm -hmm. um, and privatise it. So at that stage we're all still working on 16 mil, super 16 mil film Mm -hmm. um, and the post-production crew is quite substantial compared to what it is nowadays Um, but... If they were, I wasn't aware of it and perhaps it was only for English citizens because I clearly wasn't. Yeah. Um, And also I was a part-time position, although they kept um, giving me the opportunity to stay and continue working. um, It was on two-month sort of contracts.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm. Which is tough, especially if you have a relationship uh, back in Australia.
1: Yeah, well, it ended up – I mean, I used to write letters – every second day, I think for Matt. Um, and we spent at least three Feds worth of phone calls as well. Um, you in, in hindsight, a lot later on down the track, we realized he should have just come over and put his studies on hold. But you know, it's a bit hard at the time. I mean, we were just so young as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you, you talk about when you were at university, this sort of fascination, uh, with editing and trying to f- figure it out. Um, and a lot of editors I've, I've talked to, they figured it out with sort of um, over overseeing other editors or mentors um, as they work. And was there anyone who, who sort of helped mentor you through it or did you need to sort of sit down and figure it out for yourself in the editing room and really sort of tear apart the footage?
1: Um, I don't know that I had a mentor as such. I wasn't smart enough to seek that out. Um, as, a, as a student for the two years that I got to cut, um, we were working on 16mm film um, on Steambecks, um, mainly six plates, so that's a single track of vision and two tracks of sound. We did have access to an A plate which had two tracks of vision and two tracks of sound available to us, um, but I mainly just, worked it out by myself by watching films and starting to pull apart or even television for that matter, how they were putting the shots together um, and what effect that was having. Um, I don't know how well I was intellectualising that, but I was starting to understand, well, the wide shots go here and the close-ups go here in television, but in film it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough as a teenager not to be um, totally engrossed in Hollywood blockbusters. I mean, I still went and saw things like Flash Gordon mm-hmm. that had the Fabulous Queen soundtrack um, <laughs> in it and Sam Jones running around with his beautiful body. Um, but I was also seeing things like Ken Russell's Altered States as well. So I, I hadn't quite come on to the European films because there wasn't that much access as a teenager but – I wasn't just watching anything that was coming from Hollywood, so my influence was a little bit broader. Um, and unfortunately there weren't too many editors in Perth. So I guess if I did have a mentor, it would have been Jeff Hall who was editing the Baron Films children's projects that I worked on because as an assistant, um, you when you're cutting film, and we were, you were around it. Mm-hmm. Um, of course you had to sink brushes and rubber number them and log them and do all that sort of stuff, but you did have the opportunity in some spaces to actually be in the same room and as long as you were quiet, which of course you needed to be, um, you could hear how the editor and the director were talking to each other and you could look over their shoulders without literally standing on top of them. Mm-hmm. Um and see how they were putting the images together because as the assistant, you would know what kind of rushes had been shot, whether there were two shots, close-ups, wides, mids, over the shoulders, and see the process of the choices they would make. And because I was working in picture and sound, then I also had another opportunity at the sound process to actually see what the final edit was that we were then track laying to, um, to see the final choices as well. So In that way, I was being mentored by Jeff and um, I'm trying to remember this other editor's name. He was Vietnamese. Um, He was one of the original boat people Mm -hmm. that turned up on our West Australian shores um, in the late 70s and he was a Vietnamese editor. Thai was his name but I cannot remember the rest of his name appallingly. Um, And he was extraordinary. He He was incredibly fast. Uh, just knew film language, although, again, I didn't understand it as film language. just knew how to put pictures together. Mm -hmm. And he was, he, again, a a very gentle soul, was a great great mentor as well as just being able to be in a room. He was happy for you to be there um, and watch what he was doing.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, you had the amazing opportunity to cut Australia's first digital film, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, Red Bull.
0: Yes. Can you give me a sense of some of the trials and tribulations you had to go through to get this sort of locked down and done for the first um, full digital film? Because I've talked to others, you know, like I've talked to editors in Hollywood uh, who handled the first LA uh, digital film in Toronto, and they've all got very interesting sort of stories of trying to figure out the workflows. And I was wondering if you could give me some insight into that film and and how you tackled this this monumental task.
1: Sure. Um, well, we certainly weren't a Hollywood film. This was shot on a domestic Panasonic um, video camera, which was worth all of three grand. Um, it was shooting on mini-DV tapes. Um, it was John Hewitt's second film, and I was extremely fortunate to be involved in it um, quite by accident. Um I was asked to be the assistant originally by, by the editor Alan Woodruff mm-hmm. um, and the original concept was this, this particular film was going to be shot over five weekends, which it was, um, and it was literally going to be one-shot scenes. So the camera was just going to film a scene and then you'd splice it into the next, you'd do a splice and you'd be into the next scene. But before uh, John started shooting, Breaking Waves had been released which was one of the first films to jump cut consistently since Breathless. Mm -hmm. Um, And it inspired John and all of a sudden he went, right, well, I'm not leaving the camera on a tripod and um, we're going to jump cut this. Now, unbeknown to Alan and myself, so at the crew screening at the end, at the wrap party, um, Alan and I are looking at the rushes that are being projected silently onto a screen in the room
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we're both, <laughs> we're both at different points and we're slowly but surely walking towards this projector and actually end up standing next to each other looking at this footage going, "Huh, ah, these aren't one-shot takes and wow, it's wobbling all over the place and doing all sorts of stuff. This is interesting. John still hadn't got around to telling us what he wanted, which was fine. It wasn't, mm-hmm. That wasn't an issue. So that was exciting in itself. Um, so we had these these mini-DV tapes. We were cutting on Lightworks out of a place called The Joinery. Mm-hmm. Tim Lewis was the gentleman who ran The Joinery and is also an editor himself. Um, and he's very kindly given John and the production an amazing deal for us to work on Lightworks. Mm-hmm. So... The first thing we do is decide, okay, mini-DV tapes, they're not the greatest in the world. We need to dump them onto something a little bit more secure. So we ended up putting them onto, I'm trying to remember, I think it's SP Beta Cam, Mm -hmm. Um, and we went over tapes of John's first film called Bloodlust has been re-released if anybody wants to try and find it. I have no involvement with it. It's atrocious. And um, John knows my feelings about this, so I'm not saying anything appalling about it. Um, atrocious in the sense of just terrible filmmaking and a terrible film. And um, I was more than happy to erase the rushes <laughs> with Red Bull. Um, John, of course loves the film as he should. He's very proud of it for what it is, and it is an exploitation film. So if you ever want to see it, you, you can find it. I'm sure you can because I know it's been re-released in Australia on DVD in the last 12 months. So it must be available on VOD somewhere. Um, anyway, so we, we're we dumping the tapes down onto that. It We have got separate sound. It's not just the camera sound, thankfully, Um. So, our first job is to first digitize, and it is called digitizing, um, not ingesting, that came later, um, into Lightworks and sinking the rushes, which we did. Um, and then from them we cut. So, the footage, um, it really, we didn't really have any true technical issues with it because once we we're in the digital, uh, workings of the Lightworks, we were okay. We didn't have any true issues with Lightworks at that stage. It was a stable um, package hardware and software-wise by that stage. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was just a matter of editing. Alan at the time, because I was just supposed to assist, Alan at the time was working during the day um, and he was going to edit at night. But with the change of the style of the film, which was now going to be jump cut um, and radically pushed in that sense um, and we had multiple takes and Mark Pugh, the cinematographer, never stood in the same place when he reset. He'd always be a slightly different angle. So every shot was different um, when he moved around. Uh, it became apparent that they needed a second editor and for from, from my luck of just being in the right place at the right time and Alan's generosity um, as well as John's by trusting me, having not known me from a bar of soap, they allowed me to cut the scene. And fortunately I chose one and did it well enough that they went, right, well, you can help us edit. So I, en- I ended up cutting half the film and then Alan had to leave because he got a full-time job in Western Australia working on embarrass Films production um, and I ended up taking over the edit from there. But by that stage we'd had a complete cut Um and we had gone and spent another – John had written some extra scenes because the film was too short um, and I think we'd spent another two weekends shooting extra material. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it was it was a longer process than anybody ever determined but I've got to say for me as an editor it was the, the freest experience I've, I've had Um because we were trying something new. I'd never jump cut a film consistently before. Um, Mark's photography was visceral. It was constantly moving. Um, John was willing for you to go anywhere with it. I mean, obviously he had input later um, where we changed things and adjusted shots and changed whatever we needed to do. Um, But I was given no direction in the sense of, what the scene is supposed to do. You know what the script is surprised me was usually John's comment and uh, for the most part I managed to do that with whatever I edited. So um, it, was, it was just fantastic um, and we had time. So I think, you know, uh, depending on the scene, there's one scene called Hunt which is about two young um, schoolgirls who are stopped by some cops on the street Mm-hmm. And that was the only one that took me, I think that took me a day and a half to cut. So I'd come in in the morning and I'd edit and at 4 o'clock after John had finished working because he had a full-time job um, that wasn't in the film industry, he'd turn up and look at what I'd edited that day. So usually I'd have a scene ready for him Um but there was one this particular day I couldn't show him. I was in the middle of it and he was he was a little bit miffed that he couldn't watch anything. And I went, no, 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 I haven't finished. You've got to wait, which he was fine with. He was patient enough to, and allowed me to do that. And um, I think out of that scene we changed four edits um, to what ended up in the final. And I'm not trying to disguide about it. It was just I really got into that footage. I just sunk myself into it and um, it, was, it was just amazing to do. I really enjoyed it.
0: So that was part one of my interview with Cindy. Uh, Make sure to check out our pub nights. If you haven't already heard of this, uh, we've already been to London, we've already been to Paris, we've already been to Amsterdam, and we're coming to Toronto July 21st. We're going to LA August 3rd, and so far it's been phenomenal. Uh, We we shut down the place in London, uh, and Amsterdam was huge. We had a lot of people come out and enjoy themselves. Uh, Paris. It was different. We were more into cafes there, which was odd to me because I'm used to pub nights. But it was a blast, anyways. Um, but definitely check that out. Also, make sure to join us on Facebook, facebook.com/aotgnetwork, or on Twitter, twitter.com/aotgnetwork. And we've started actually using our YouTube channel, <laughs> so um, a lot of these podcasts are going to start ending up there soon. And we're also going to uh, start creating unique content for YouTube, for, for editors, for VFX artists, anything we can think of. Uh, in fact, we have a new series coming out that we'll tell you about soon. In the meantime, I've got to thank Cindy. Again, check out her work. Go to imdb.com and check out Cindy Clarkson. Of course, you can see her written work in the assembly, aotg.com slash assembly. And of course, you can... Uh, always catch her in the theaters with her films, Canopy, Van Diemen's Island, Every Night, Every Night, Uh, The Man Who Sold the World, Just, just a tiny sliver of all the work she's done. So definitely check it out. And of course, thanks to the Australian screen editors for organizing this, and of course, my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.